moment, and uh, I'm totally praying for myself, completely self-centered, so, uh, so I'm going to pray for me, and I will pray for you too, but uh, I need to pray for me, so let's get after it. Father, thank you so much for uh, today. Thank you for being here and being home. Uh, thank you for um, uh, these fellow laborers, co-laborers in the gospel, and um, Holy Spirit, we pray now that you uh, would be, be everything Jesus said you would be for us. That you would counsel us and guide us into truth. And I ask that you would use this and, uh, to the upbuilding of your people. And to the destruction of the, the work of the evil one. Uh, who, who seeks to uh, hinder the work of your kingdom in us. So uh, do great things now. Uh, please, Lord. Uh, for your glory and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, uh, talked about personal discipleship this morning, and um, so this afternoon I want to follow that up because I, I, the the connection between something I said this morning and this talk is is the killing of sin um, in our in our personal discipleship and our walk with the Lord. Sin 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 is bad. Sin bad, holy good. Okay, sin bad, holy good. The problem often um, in the West is that we have been influenced with a naturalistic worldview. Okay? And I don't have time to do a worldview talk, but naturalism is the idea that there is nothing supernatural. Everything is just merely natural. What you see is what, what is. And that has influenced education, medicine, so many things. Um, and so often we think, we think unconsciously with your worldview. And, and when it comes to sin, it's easy to be very naturalistic, atheistic, right? If I keep it to myself, nobody knows and it doesn't affect anybody, right? So just keep it hidden. The problem is, as Christians, we can't be naturalists. Because the Bible teaches us there's God. <laughs> and there's this whole other component to created order, spiritual realm, right? Right? You guys understand that, right? This is pretty important. Sin isn't, sin is not okay if we keep it hidden. Sin is a killer. So I want to start by asking this question, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to speed through this. I got like two hours worth of stuff, and, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably speed through some things. And so the notes are at MitchJolly.com, and so you can follow through, and you'll see where I speed up. Uh, and, and so you can look at it later and go back and set your disposal. So I want to start by asking this question. Why should I deal with my sin? Why shouldn't I just ignore it? Right? And tell my sin and tell everybody else it's going to be okay. Remember, we said in our last talk that part of personal discipleship is to deal brutally with our sin. Um, it seems like that it's become in vogue somewhat maybe to be comfortable with our sin and even to some degree flaunt it, maybe toss the casual gospel look at it. Um, it's easy to court sin, make it our friend, be okay with reverting back to it, to things once delivered from. But what I have to remember, what we all have to remember is sin is deadly. Sin is deadly. The wages of sin is 
You really believe that? Right? Sin doesn't only kill the sinner, though, and this is this is important. Right? We talked about sin is it's a supernatural component. In this room right now, there is more going on than what you see. There is more going on than what you see with your eyes. Sin is never isolated to me. Never isolated to me. Okay? And I want to prove it to you. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. And by it, what's it? A root of bitterness. By it, many become defiled. Now the question is, what's he saying? Hebrews 12, 15 is an exposition of Deuteronomy 29, 18 and 19. Okay? Did you know that? When he says root of bitterness, he's not talking about the sin of being bitter. He's talking about, Moses is talking about Deuteronomy 29, 18 and 19. And here's what it says. Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, and he's clarifying what this root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit is, and it's one, one, a person who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I will be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Do you hear that? Do you feel the weight of that? Is sin isolated to the person? Or does it affect everybody? And according to this passage, it affects everybody, doesn't it? That it'll lead to the wiping away of moist and dry alike. And so the writer of Hebrews comments on this when he says, see that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And this no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. So what do we learn from this passage? Well, number one, this bitter root is turning away from the Lord for little gods, which are not really gods. And they're nothing more than allegiances to things other than Jesus. Food, sex, cars, houses, sports, people's expectations, ministry. See, the problem with our little gods is that we're far too sophisticated to put a wooden statue on our mantle, on our mantle at the house, right? We're far too sophisticated for that. We disguise them with acceptable practices in our culture, Right? Anything I bow down to, sacrifice resources to, anything that I give the majority of my time to, apart from Christ that takes the place of God's kingdom, is a little God. And it's idolatry. And so this bitter root is turning away from the Lord for little gods, whatever they happen to be. Going after little gods produces fruit, but it's not the fruit of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the curse. 
We learn here that the fruit of the curse leads to a stubborn heart that fools itself into believing they're okay. Did you notice that stark statement in Deuteronomy 29? The person who is thinking this way says, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. It's going to be okay. It's just in here. I'm going to be all right. They fool themselves into thinking it's okay. We notice number four here in this passage that the fruit of the curse leads to God sweeping those who do not take cover in the grace of God away. And the writer of Hebrews says, this defiles many. My sin is never isolated to me. Sin is atmospheric. Sin is atmospheric. When it comes to sin, why should I care about it? Why should I do anything about it? Well, I've already made the case that it's atmospheric. It's not just isolated to me. It affects the air in the room. You ever been in the room and you knew something was wrong? It's called the discernment. I think naturally God's given it to our wives and our women. They just have it. My wife will say, did you pick up on that? I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm just eating. Oh, what do you, what do you pick up on what? And it's like, that, that it wasn't right. And I'm like, what wasn't right? This tasting pretty good to me. That's not what I'm talking about. Totally clueless, right? And so, um, but even us men sometimes, God's gracious gift of the gift of discernment, you, you walk into a room and the room's not right. You had no clue what's, what's going on, but the room's not right. You know what I'm talking about? That, that's discernment. That's, that's a gift of the Spirit of God. That's him working in us to let us know something in the spiritual atmosphere isn't right. You guys believe in Satan and demons? Hopefully you believe your Bible. Satan is real. Demons are real. And and so it's atmospheric. So that's why my sin is never isolated to me. I mean, you read Joshua, right? Joshua chapter 7 in the sin of Achan. You read that carefully. Did all the people sin? No. Achan did. But who did it affect? The whole camp. The whole camp. Why? It was hidden nicely under his tent. Nobody else knew. But God. And who suffered because of it? Everybody. Because what happened? They go up to try to take a little bitty city and get routed. And the Lord's going, Joshua, get up off your face. You're sinning the camp, hoss. No. Right? Because sin is atmospheric. So apart from that, why should I care about my sin. I'm going to give you a few reasons here. uh, And then we're going to look at Ephesians 4, 17 and 24 very quickly. And then I'm going to try to bring you little John Owen into 2016. Um, You know who John Owen is? Awesome. He's John Owen. Amazing. Number one, why do I need to care about my sin? Well, the person's salvation is at stake. You see, the reality is one can't live in rebellion against God and be a follower of Jesus. And I wrote a 30-page paper on 1 John 3, 1 to 10. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away when I was in seminary. And I don't have time to do an exposition of 1 John 3, 1 to 10. But John is very clear 
that those who remain in their sin and love their sin more than Jesus are of the devil and do not belong to the Lord. It doesn't get any clearer. It's plain. You don't even need to do it in the Greek language. It's just plain in English, right? And so the person who doesn't care about their sin and lives in rebellion against God has never tasted salvation. Repentance is evidence that I'm saved, that I've been transformed by the gospel. Repentance should be the dominant characteristic of the follower of Jesus' life. I'll give you an illustration. If you like to fish... You might like to fish. You might fish. You ever catch a fish and uh, get it up out of the water? Maybe you drop it or it's laying on the ground before you put it on the stringer or you're catching release and you let it go. What does it do? It flops and it struggles. Why? Because it can't breathe air. And is it trying to flop up the hill or back down into the water? Back down into the water. Right. Why? Because it's a fish and it belongs in the water. Its identity is fish. And because its identity is fish, it struggles to be where fish want to be. Because it's not good being out here on the land. He's just swimming along. He saw a nice little snack. It was tempting. He took a bite. Next thing you know, his lips got ripped off and he's flopping around on the land trying to get his way back in the water. Why? Because that's where fish belong. He wanted to get back in the water. I made a mistake. It looked good. The worm was beautiful and juicy. Next thing you know, my lips are missing and I'm flopping around in the dirt. I just want to get back in the water because that's where I belong. Right? When a Christian bites the bait of sin and gets landed by their folly... A follower of Jesus will flail with all their might to get right. Why? Because they can't live in sin. Their identity is follower of Jesus. Yeah, they got fooled. They took the bait. They got caught. But they were instantly sorry. And they will work with all their might to get it right and stay right. Why? Because they're a follower of Jesus. That's what follower of Jesus do, right? They just, they want to be right. See, a fish that stays on the land is dead because it ceases to be a fish because it dies. A person that loves their sin more than righteousness is not a Christian. They're dead in their sin and they need to be transformed by the power of the gospel. So why should we care about our sin? It's because if I don't repent of my sin, I'm evidencing I've never been transformed by the gospel. Does that make sense? Don't hear do not hear in your ears, lose your salvation. That is not what the Bible teaches. It does teach, however, that those who do not repent of their sin have never tasted the gospel. Why do something about my sin? Number two, the gospel's reputation is at stake. It's if we don't take sin seriously, we communicate that Jesus' death was really of no account. Jesus didn't die so I could make sin my pet. Jesus didn't die so that I could have an allegiance apart from him. Jesus died to kill sin in us and reconcile us back to the Father. After all, it's the curse that separated us from the Father. Third, the church family is at stake. Spiritual vitality in the church is at stake. Because remember, sin is atmospheric. 
There's more at work than meets the eye. And if I don't deal with my sin, and if we as followers of Christ and discipling people don't help restore sinners, then we allow the evil one access and run the awful risk of a harvest of bitter roots in a multitude of cancerous ways. My great desire for you, my great desire for the people in our church and what drives our work in Rome, Georgia is for the glory of God, disciple the nations by being and producing radical followers of Jesus. And everything we say, everything we do is intended to drive people away from the rebellion and toward the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the fruit of righteousness, not the fruit of the curse. Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. Um, Give you a little background to chapter 4, verse 17 to 24. These Ephesians, according to chapter 2, were at one time dead. But now they are alive in Christ. And because they're now alive in Christ, they've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And they walk with Christ, they're reconciled to him and they're reconciled to one another. By the way, Ephesians is a great book for up in and out. Seated with Christ, chapter two, reconciled to one another, the hostile wall division between Jew and Gentile, slave and free is broken, so they're reconciled to each other. Then five, one, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. God's mission is the nations up in and out. They were dead, but now they're alive. And they've been told in chapter 4, verse 1, that they are now to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live in a manner that's worthy of Christ. And so he begins in chapter 4 to unpack what it is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we'll pick up in verse 17 and read quickly through verse 24. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of their heart. I read that wrong. Due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. What a great statement. That's not how you learned Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him... And we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. What does the old self belong to? Your former manner of life. The old self is everything we just read there. Right? Impurity. Greedy. Sensuality. Put that off. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul tells us some things here. He tells us what not to do. He's going to tell us who we are. And he's going to tell us what to do. Very quickly. And I want to jump into some John Owen to give you some steps. What to do. Verse 17 to 19, do not live like what you used to be. Now remember, he's writing to Christians. You tracking with me? 
The book of Ephesians is written to the church at Ephesus. And remember, they were dead, but now they are alive. And he's reminding them to walk worthy of the gospel. Live in a manner that puts the gospel beautifully on display. But here, he's reminding them not to act like what they once were. So I just make this statement here. If Paul has to remind us not to act like what we used to be, then the propensity to act like that must still be real. And it is. I promise you. And if you've got it figured out and you haven't sinned in the past hour, I need to talk to you when I'm done because I need to learn how you just pulled that off. Right? If Paul has to remind us not to act like what we used to be, then the propensity to act like that must be real. So here's the reality. When Jesus justified us, he counted to us all of his righteousness. But we have left over in this fallen flesh the curse of sin. And we have to wage war against it. Romans 7 is completely clear that Paul had to wage war against the easiness of sin. And make war to do what is right even Though he wanted to do what's right. Sin came easy. Doing right came hard. Does anybody identify with that? Sin's like breathing. Obeying Jesus is like sledgehammering concrete. It is hard. And Paul, Ephesians and Colossians are very similar. And there's so many similarities between them. In Colossians 1.21, he says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, once alienated, you were once, but you're no longer alienated. Colossians 3.7, In these two you once walked when you were living in them. Paul reminded that church, and he's reminding this church, that the manner of life that was once theirs and so easy to do can no longer be their manner of life. So he's reminding them here, this is what you used to be. You're not that anymore. But the propensity is to act like that. And it's going to be there and it's real. So therefore, therefore, you're going to have to fight. Paul's reminding them not to return to dead living that's alienated from God. And you ask, geez, can I even do that? And Paul's resounding answer is, yes, you can. You certainly can, which is why he's writing to tell them, do not go back. You're evidencing if you go back that you have never belonged to Jesus. Can an unbeliever act like they really believe? In other words, can there really be people in the church who aren't followers of Jesus? Can you say Judas? Right? And so the reality is, the reality is we have to fight like mad against sin to cut it off because if we don't, We are evidencing that we have an allegiance bigger than Jesus. And that is evidence that we may have never been converted. We're going to struggle, but struggle we will. Do you hear that? 
struggle we will. There's a difference between struggling with and laying down for. Does that make sense? Struggle with is because you're a follower of Christ and you don't love your sin and you want to get into righteous and holy air. Lay down and die, evidence you've never been converted. Never let yourself be driven by felt needs. Because this, as Martin Luther said, this flesh is wont to grumble dreadfully. It will lie to me. It will tell me that I need things I don't need. It will tell me I want things that will kill me. And if I give in to it, it will kill me. Does that make sense? And, and you got to know yourself. you got to know yourself well enough to know those places in you that you have to put a sword to. And Paul's reminding them, you used to walk like this, but that's not how... You learned Christ, which leads us to this very quickly, who we are, what we used to be, who we are. Verse 20 and 21, because we were dead and we've now been made alive, we have learned Christ. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Who are we? We've heard Christ. We've learned Jesus. Not simply physical hearing, but our souls have been awakened. And we've heard the awakening call of the gospel. We know his voice. We know his life. We've been raised to life in Christ. That's who we are. That's our new identity. Jesus' possession. We've been taught in Christ. We know the truth is in Jesus. And because we know the truth is in Jesus, we know his voice, and we are alive in him, that is our new identity. And it defines everything we are. So what does he tell them to do? Verse 22 to 24. He tells them to put off the old self and put on the new self. The primary truth communicated in verse 22 to 24 is that in Christ we can kill sin. In Christ, we can kill sin. It says, verse 22, put off your old self. I don't know if you realize this or not, but that's an active duty. That's an active command. That's not a passive activity. That doesn't happen by sitting and doing nothing. Putting off our old self is an activity. It requires us working and striving. Let me, let me read a little John Owen and John Piper to you here on this issue. I wasn't in the room for John Owen. That was 17th century. I was in the room when Piper said what he said. And I'll quote that to you here in a second. I was sitting, now Joseph was there for that. Pastor Joseph was sitting in the room and we heard Piper tell us what I'm going to tell you. So I'm going to tell you what Piper said. But I'm going to start by telling you what John Owen said. Um, do you mortify? By the way, if you haven't read The Mortification of Sin by John Owen, you repent and believe the gospel. You go read that book. It's hard to read. I'm going to lie. Dyslexic guys, everything's hard to read. So if I can do it, you can. Okay? So go read that book. Fantastic. Here's what he says. You've probably read this quote before, at least the last part of it. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? What he means by that is kill sin, put it to shame, 
put it to rest, get rid of it? Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. The wages of sin is, you believe that? Or do you want to pet your sin and hold on to it and hope nobody knows? We can, it's atmospheric. It can sweep away everybody. I'll tell you why this is fresh. I'm not going to get into a lot of details, but we've had to deal with, with church discipline issues this week in our fellowship. And so I'm not preaching on Acts 12, 1 to 25 tomorrow, which is what I'm scheduled to preach on as we're teaching through Acts. We're dealing with the issue of church discipline and life of the body, and it affects everybody. Public sin affects everybody. The, the disgrace for the person, the disappointment and anger in the hearts of people who loved and cared for, it affects everybody. It affects everybody. And what's crazy is to watch this individual love sin more than Jesus and keep running. Knowing it will kill them. You don't pet sin. Because the wages of sin is death. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be killing sin or it will kill you. There will be a death. It will be you or sin. But nobody walks away unscathed. Either sin dies or you die. Does that make sense? Romans 8.13 was written to Christians. Romans 8.13 was written to Christians. The church at Rome. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will Live. Listen to John Owen. This is the last John Owen and then Piper. He goes on to say, First, believers who are free from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their daily work to mortify the indwelling power of sin. You've been freed from the condemnation of sin. And therefore, make it your daily work to put to death the power of sin in your flesh. You're not condemned and now put to death what's left in your flesh. Second, that was my commentary. That's not why he said I'm commenting. Second, only the Holy Spirit is sufficient for this work. And third, the life, vigor, and comfort of the believer's spiritual life depends much upon this work of mortifying sin. The life, vigor, comfort of the believer's spiritual life depends much on this work of mortifying sin. Life, vigor, comfort. I've never seen anybody I've counseled in pastoral ministry in sin who was full of spiritual life, vigor, and comfort before the Lord. Never. Never. Never at ease. Never walking in the power of the Spirit. Never feeling the comfort of fatherly relationship to God. Why? Because sin kills. Right? Here's what Piper says. You're being dead with Christ virtually. You're being quickened with him will not excuse you from this work. In other words, just because you're saved and you've been awakened to life doesn't mean you're excused from killing sin. And our Savior tells us how his father deals with every branch in him that bears fruit. Every true and living branch. He purges it that it may bring forth more fruit. John 15 too. He prunes it. And that not for a day or two, but while it is a branch in this world 
And the apostle tells you what his practice is. I keep my body under control and bring it into subjection. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He, Jesus, was killed for your sin. And so there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You were killed in him and died to sin. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, kill in yourself every quivering of that corpse of sin, lest you find him to be no corpse but a captor in yourself dead. Wow. Wow. Listen, it is our work in walking worthy in Christ to be about the work of putting off the old self that will seek to grumble and rise from its dead state and kill us. In other words, we better learn to put a sword in the quivering corpse of sin. Every time it starts to quiver and rise up, put it down. Or it will kill you and me. So, I'm going to close out by giving you ten strategies that will help us kill sin. Nine of them are from John Owen. I added one. I'm so proud of myself. I felt like his list was incomplete. I made an effort to smooth out some 17th century old English so we can make a little more sense of his exhortation. Number one, and these are all available for you on the website, MitchJolly.com. Consider whether the sin you're contending with has any dangerous symptoms attending it. Consider whether the sin you're contending with has any dangerous symptoms you're attending that attend it. You know what your, your Achilles heel is. You know it. We all know it. We probably have one or two, like, you know, you know, understand, figuratively, Achilles heel, not literally. Like, you have one or two things that probably choke you out on a daily basis or try to choke you out on a daily basis. Oh, it says, consider whether the sin you're contending with has any dangerous symptoms attending it. If you're coming down with a cold, you start to get some what? Symptoms, right? You might have a scratchy throat, sore throat, start getting a stuffy nose. And what do you do? You start treating it, right? Maybe take some vitamin C and do some other things, right? If you're in Rome, Georgia, you go get the shine, mix it with a little, little honey and do some other things and start working it, right? You do whatever you do to try to stave off the cold. You start working on that thing the very moment you get the symptoms. Here's the idea that Owen has in mind. What symptoms come along with the sin you're seeking to kill? The very moment you start to see those symptoms, attack it. Don't wait. Don't pet it. Don't welcome it. Put it to death in that moment. So begin to recognize the symptoms that attend that sin. And the very moment those symptoms show up, attack the sin. Put it to death right there. Because if you wait and you allow the symptoms to progress, it will rise up on you and master you. Very quickly, won't it? And if you're being honest with yourself, you know it will. And you also know that when you start to attack those symptoms, it will leave you quickly. By the way, this is spiritual warfare. This is a spiritual battle. And it requires you being aware. Jesus promised that he would give us the counsel of the Holy Spirit. And he will teach us in those moments what to do. He brings scripture to remembrance, right? Isn't it really cool how sometimes, sometimes, man, that thing is coming on you. And all of a sudden, scripture will pop into mind. You're like, where did that come from? The Lord. 
And what did Paul say in Corinthians? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And he will provide a way of escape. Jesus is good. And so symptoms start coming on you. You bring things to mind. You look for a way to put a sword in that sin and deal with it right there and take the off ramp right there. Take it. He will provide it every single time. But you got to be tuned in. You got to be willing to fight. Number two, Owen says, get a clear and abiding sense upon your mind and conscience of the guilt, danger, and evil of that sin. You got to come convinced that sin is really evil and not friendly. We can't allow ourselves to believe that our sin is not really that bad. The reality is, my sin, your sin, the sin of the world, and its grossest evils put Jesus on the cross. And it may not be so much the evils of my sin as much as the object of my offense, which is God. And I've rebelled against the king of the universe. And so we have to become convinced that my sin is really not good. Number three, Owen says, load your conscience with the guilt of that sin. Second Corinthians 7, 10 says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces regret. Owen is not talking about guilt that is the antithesis of Romans 8, 1. He's not talking about condemnation. Owen is talking about 2 Corinthians 7.10, grief that leads to repentance. So Owen says, load your conscience with the guilt of that sin. Load your conscience with grief over that sin. It is a good thing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly grief produces repentance. That sin ought to cause you to grieve. Grieve. And I think he means grieve. If you've lost a relative, a mom, a dad, somebody, and you had to put them in the ground, I preached both my parents' funerals. You know what it's like to grieve. That's what he has in mind. That sin that will kill should create grief in you. And that grief should cause you to run toward life. Right? Grief is not fun. Grief is awful. And when we load our conscience with grief over sin, and that sin begins to rise, and that godly grief that produces repentance comes on us, we will run from it. Because that's not fun. Life better. Right? Because life is better, is it not? It's much better. It's much better. Number four, Owen says, cultivate a constant longing for deliverance from the power of it. (laughs) Number four is really predicated on all the previous ones. If I have to cultivate a longing for deliverance from the power of this sin, I can't love it. You know what I'm saying? If I love my sin and want to hold on to it, I'm not going to cultivate a desire to be out of it. But if I hate it and want to be free of it, I will cultivate a desire to be free of it. The idea of cultivate is planting a seed, fertilizing it, watering it, weeding around it and caring for it in order to receive the fruit of the seed planted. Cultivating a longing for deliverance Is to truly want the fruit of holiness and be rid of the disease of sin. Plant holiness. Fertilize holiness. Water holiness. 
Weed out things that would choke out holiness. Don't get comfortable with sin. Grow a longing for what it would be like to no longer be beset with that thing. I'm, I'm not a fan of, I don't believe in the power of positive thinking in any type of crazy way. I, I don't mean, I don't even know what I mean by that. That's not in my notes. I want to qualify what I'm about to say because I don't want you to hear any like new agey weird thing here. Just imagine what it would be like to be free from that sin. Dream about being free of that thing and set that image in your mind and run toward it. You, you hear that? Does that make sense? I don't mean that in a new agey weird way that you think and it's going to happen. That's, that's messed up prosperity junk. That's sin. That's not Bible. I mean, imagine in your mind being free of that sin and run toward that glorious, glorious thing. Because you know what? It is okay to pray for the Father to deliver you from that. Because Jesus told us to ask, seek, and knock until the good Father gives you fish and bread. He will not give you a snake and rocks. And fish and bread looks like being free of that thing. So imagine him feeding you with freedom from that thing and run to it. Okay? Number five. Consider whether the sin is rooted in your nature and exacerbated by your temperament. That's really weird, but I'll try to unpack it very quickly. Really consider whether or not this sin is the result of the fact that maybe I'm just a jerk. And my jerkiness is producing the sin that causes the problem. Let me give you an example. If your sin is lust, the objects of your lust may not be what needs to be dealt with. As much as a temperament of dissatisfaction and lack of contentment. Make sense? If a guy has a lust problem, it might not be cutting off women being around. Like, you know, in the next county. Right? He's trying to isolate himself somewhere up in Alaska. Like, I just need to be around bears. No women... That's, that's not... No, no, no. The problem isn't women. The problem is dissatisfaction. Core dissatisfaction with Christ. Right? Core dissatisfaction with one's wife. And so the temperament is what has to be dealt with. Not necessarily the surface level. The root, not the fruit. Number six. Consider what occasions and advantages your sin has taken to exert. And put forth itself... And watch against them all. In other words, learn to take note of the weaknesses that the sin takes advantage of and shore up defenses. If you know there is a time and a place where those things start to attack you, avoid that time and that place. Make sense? When we're in our country working, we know there are times not to travel between certain cities. Number one, the State Department tells us. Number two, experience. And number three, loud explosions. And so if you venture out when you're told not to, you can't be surprised if things go south, right? So consider the occasions and advantages your sin takes and put forth effort to watch against them, right? If your problem is materialism and getting the newest thing drives all your labor to the exclusion of a passion for Christ, 
and the discipline of self-denial and managing God's resources for his kingdom, then take note of what exacerbates the desire to get something new. If it's the constant visiting of your favorite sporting goods store website, like Bass Pro Shops, or oh, the Glock website is awesome. The DPMS website is good. Then have your wife or friend or somebody block those things and take your credit card and don't let you buy guns, right? Until you have cash. And the kids are fed and you're clothed and your house is paid for. I hadn't done that. I'm just saying I like guns a lot and I don't have enough money to even pretend like I could spend any. So anyway, but the occasion is the website, right? And so whatever the occasion or advantage of sin to take advantage of you, take note of those weaknesses and cut them off. Be proactive. Number seven, rise mightily against the first actings and conceptions of your sin. This is... Mark 9, 43 to 47, where Jesus says, if your right eye sins against you, tell it, oh, it's okay. Is that what he said? Plug it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Better to enter the kingdom lame and blind than to go to hell. That's Jesus. He's speaking hyperbolically to the fact that when sin raises its ugly head, cut it off and don't dialogue with it. Don't converse with it. Kill it. Deal with it quickly. Because if you let it stick around, it will eat you. Number eight, meditate in such a way that you're filled at all times with self-abasement and thoughts of your own vileness. This will not play well in modern Western society. If we Stuart Smalley, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Self-love is a God of our age. The Bible's not full of such self-love. It is very honest about who we are. And only when we're honest about who we are can we be exalted to who we are in Christ. So meditate in such a way that you're filled at all times with self-abasement and thoughts of your own vileness. We're having this discussion at lunch In the modern evangelical world of Christian superstardom, the reason guys go off the grid is because they begin to buy their own press and think that they were really, really good stuff. People like them, they download their podcasts and they're reading their blog and people send them emails and want them to be thither and yon speaking and being the Christian superstar and they're pretty and everybody likes them. And they bought their own press. And the next thing you know, they disappear because they bought into their sin. They thought they were something else. Rather than humbling themselves before God and before men. And the next thing you know, they fall. Let the biblical balance rule your own heart and mind. The Bible will call you a saint and a sinner. Simply believe that. Wrestle with that tension. It's healthy. Number nine, listen to what God says about your soul. And do not speak peace to yourself before God speaks it. I want you to hear this one carefully. Listen to what God says about your soul and do not speak peace to yourself before God speaks it. But listen effectively to what he says to your soul. Seek the Father's peace, not your own psychological soothing. I'm going to say that again. Seek the Father's 
peace, not your own psychological soothing. The Father's grace to bother your soul will save your life. There was a time when my wife and I were in Texas finishing up graduate school and I was a student pastor in the pastor-in-waiting of a very large church in Arlington, Texas. And it was a political machine that I hated with every fiber of my being. And I wanted to go intern with Bob Roberts at Northwood Church and learn how to plant a church and adopt unreached people groups. And the Lord told me, not now, very clearly, wait on me. I didn't want to wait. I found my occasion, my opportunity to disregard the Lord's clear instruction. And I gave my resignation and left and went to intern and learn how to plan church. And I justified it by saying, but I'm giving up a full-time salary, a great full-time salary in a large church to go back in floors and cut grass and work for free and learn how to plan a church. So obviously, the, yeah. So I justified disobeying a very clear word from the Lord. The Lord put me under a six-year cloud of internal unrest. It was Hebrews 12 style discipline. I could not shake it. There were days I sat down with people I loved and I wrestled with whether or not I was even in the faith. Whether or not God had cut me off because I couldn't feel him, couldn't hear him, couldn't see him. And I was under a dark season of duress. And it was the Lord's discipline of me. And no matter how hard I tried to speak to my own self-worth, there was constant abasement of my sin and constantly brought before my face. I'll never forget the day the cloud lifted. Six years. Because the Lord could not have been clearer. He was clear, stay. I said, go. And I did what I wanted. And the Lord in his grace set me under discipline for a season. And the day the cloud lifted, a dear friend brought me 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. And it says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's better to do what God says than to lose your salary and go cut grass. So I said cutting grass and losing my salary was giving something up for Jesus. And Jesus said, no, stay. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. <laughs> and I was like, that's what I did. I was divining evil spirits and I was idolatrous. I was my God. I And my satisfaction was my God. And I did what I wanted to do and I disobeyed you and I sacrificed myself, not you. And to obey is better than sacrifice. And prophetically, that person spoke over me a word from the Lord. 
and his restoration and his forgiveness and the clouds lifted and it was over. And I made a vow that I will never disobey a clear word from you ever again. And I have kept that vow to this moment. It's cost me dearly. But to obey is better than sacrifice. (laughs) And to listen than the fat of rams. You see, I wanted my own psychological soothing, but I needed to learn to hear the Lord. And what I needed to learn was God does not appreciate my sin and he doesn't pet it the way I do. He would prefer me to put a sword in it because to obey is better than sacrifice. See, learn to discern by the Holy Spirit the difference between satanic condemnation and a spirit-wrought eclipse of the soul to drive us to humility and repentance. And there's a difference. That six years was not satanic condemnation. It was a God gift of an eclipse of my soul to drive me to a place of humility and repentance. So that I would be fine with being unknown and simply happy to obey. So as Owen says, listen to what God says to your soul. And do not speak peace to yourself before God speaks it. But listen effectively what he says to your soul. So when he says discipline, receive it. When he says freedom, receive it. And ten, this is mine. Nowhere near as weighty as Owen's. Enjoy the superior pleasure of seeing and knowing Jesus. The key in my estimation where I critique Owen is he left off the best thing. The superior pleasure of seeing and knowing Jesus. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, the problem with sin, sin promises joy and pleasure. And the very second you take the bait, your lips been ripped off and you're wallowing around in the dirt trying to get back in the water. Right? You know, I, I just wanted a bite. I, It's bad, I know. It's because we thought that thing would give us more joy or more pleasure than the Lord. And what we find is, no, superior joy and superior pleasure is found in Christ. When Isaiah was besieged with the death of Uzziah, his greatest need was not a strategy to ease their vulnerability against outside attack. His greatest need was what happened to him in Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. See, your greatest need in mind is to have the inferior pleasures of sin obliterated by the superior pleasure of seeing and knowing Jesus Christ. And when he is the superior pleasure to us, sin will take a backseat. And guys, I'm going to tell you something. It will be a lifelong fight. Remember what I said this morning? The last lesson we'll learn in our discipleship is learning to die well. And that last temptation will be to not die well. And the last victory will be when Jesus walks us into death well. And we get to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now, come into the pleasure of your master. That'd be a good day. That's a good day. Guys, let me pray for you. Father, we pray that you will help us to love you more than our sin. And that our personal discipleship would rub off onto our students. 
Lord, I pray for our lives to be lives that um, are absolutely saturated with pursuing you and following you in everything. And God, I pray that from that you would bring about the fruit of discipleship in others' lives as, as we try to just obey your command to disciple the nations. And I pray for fruit in our own lives, fruit, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. And I uh, pray that you would bring that all about to this glorious, beautiful aroma of joy in Christ. Father, we pray that you would cause the ministries represented in this building to flourish in obedience to you. And that our metric of success would be obedience to you. And that you would grace that with great joy in our hearts. And great pleasure in you regardless of any numbers. Lord, we trust you now to lead us. And pray that in all these things you'd be glorified and our joy in you would increase. Amen.